At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both horse and rider lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth, Selah, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. Those are verses 6 through 12 of Psalm 76, which along with Psalm 75 are the psalms appointed for today, Saturday, September the 18th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing our look at the life of Elijah. We're finishing up the life of Elijah, in fact, today in 2 Kings 2, 1 to 18, and then in the epistle, which is 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 7, and Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. It's a very brief um, gospel lesson today. So here we go with Elijah, and so now the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind. Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Now, remember that that when God spoke to Elijah in the whirlwind, he gave him some tasks to do. Go anoint the next king of Israel. Go uh, lay hands on the person who will lead the army and tell them what to do. And then also go lay hands on Elisha and anoint him to be your successor. And so he's done that, and now here he is with Elijah in Gilgal. Now, Gilgal is an interesting place. It, it, it's a place we're not quite sure where it is. There are multiple places that had been called Gilgal. So they're coming from this place, Gilgal, and Elijah says to Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. I got to go a long journey. I need you to stay by yourself. Remember when he fled from Jezebel, what he did was he fled to uh, into the land and left his servant there and then went into the wilderness, left the land and went into the wilderness. And here he's saying, look, you know, I, I got to go further. You stay here. And remember when he anointed, when he laid hands on, blessed Elisha and raised him up. Initially, Elisha said, "Give me a minute. I got to take care of something here, and then I'll come and follow you. I got to plow this field and let <clears throat> the family know it." And he says, "No, no, no. What have I to do with you?" And then he starts to go on, and Elisha then takes the uh, the plow that he's using, and he he sets it on fire and burns the cattle that are used to plow it. He's putting everything in the past behind in the same way that the disciples did when they left their nets in Galilee. And so you've got a similar sort of a situation here. And so what what Elijah is doing here is what he did with Elisha the first time that he met him, which is to say, hey, you stay behind. I have something else to do. I got to be moving on. But Elisha said, no, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I won't leave you. And so they went down to Bethel, which was the original worship place of the people of God once they came into the land. And so they get there, and the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. And what's interesting about this and what's humorous about this in a lot of ways is if you remember what Elijah's complaint was when he went into the wilderness, he said, I'm alone. Everybody else has has left, and nobody will speak up for you. But we know that that's not true. We know it because... Uh, the first person that he met and said, tell your master Ahab to come to me, said, hey, I've got a hundred prophets hidden. 
And so he knew, even when he was making that complaint, that he wasn't the only one. He had these prophets that were hidden. But now, as he's as he's about to be taken up into heaven, what's humorous is everywhere he goes, groups of prophets come to him. And it would, it, in some ways, it's, it's God's great mercy and gift to Elijah, right? Because that not only do they come, they also know exactly what's going on. So they're proven to be true prophets of God. And so then Elijah looks at Elisha at um, Bethel and says, stay here for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I'm not going to leave you. So the two of them went on and they get there and they get near the Jordan and 50 men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were <clears throat> standing by the Jordan. And, and then Eli- so there's 50 more. Elijah takes his cloak, rolls it up, strikes the water, and the water was parted to the one side and the other till the two of them could go through on dry ground. Now, that's very similar kinds of stuff, right? Because in God parted the waters. And here he parts the waters in order for Elijah to actually leave the land, to go onto the other side of the Jordan where he's going to be taken up. But it, it's he, he rolled back the waters of the Jordan in order for the people to pass through in the time of Joshua as well. And then certainly this would would be recalling the Red Sea experience at some level, too. But he's leaving the land in order to be taken up into heaven here. And the last time he left the land was was when he made his complaint. It ends up in that cave. So when they had crossed, they crossed together. Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I should do for you before I'm taken from you. And Elisha said, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And Elijah said, you've asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. So he, he, he says, essentially, here's the sign that you've received a double portion. The double portion would be given to you if you see this happen. And as they <clears throat> still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. And then he, Elisha, took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces because of the death of Elisha. This is a sign of mourning. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to one side and to the other, and Elijah, Elisha sorry, went over. And so the, he asked for a double portion. And then now when he comes back to the water, he takes Elijah's cloak, the one that Elijah had rolled up and struck the water with, and now he asks, are you going to be with me as well? And so all these prophets are there, see this thing. They see this happen. They see it on both sides. They see Elijah do it, and then they see Elisha do it. And so now they, they transfer their allegiance to him immediately in the same way that at least we believe John and Peter and Andrew transferred their allegiance to Jesus from John the Baptist when they saw the sign that had been given. So the spirits of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him, Elisha, opposite them. They said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, behold, now there are with your servants 50 strong men. Let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord caught him up and cast him on some mountain or into some valley. He might still be around. And Elisha said, no. And they said, no, please. And he said, okay. And so they left. And for three days they sought him but didn't find him. And they came back to him while he was still staying at Jericho and said, did I not say to you, don't go? There was no purpose in going there. You need to to fully transfer your allegiance to me because he's gone. 
Elijah's gone. He is not coming back. Well, they believe he's coming back, but not at this time. They didn't have that belief. They believe he's coming back um, prior to Messiah, which is what Jesus says about John the Baptist, that Elijah, Elijah sorry, has come and you've rejected him. So in the, in the gospel lesson today, Jesus is talking about his mission, and this is one of the things that absolutely drives me crazy about the church today, particularly the liberal church, but, but not just the liberal church, actually. It's not fair to do that. It's fair to say that all of us neglect to teach some of the commandments, and we relax some of the commandments even, which is something Jesus does not commend here. He condemns it. He says, do, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to do away with these things. And it's interesting because I've got people that in my life, not particularly at the moment, I don't think, but I've certainly had plenty of people in my life who believe that the Spirit of God replaced the law completely. It, it didn't. What the Spirit of God came to do was to open your eyes to the understanding of the law and make your heart understand what the law truly means and what the applications of the law truly mean. Jesus has just taught in the—he's um, beginning to teach here, actually, in, in Matthew's Gospel. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to raise the bar on multiple sins, including adultery, and by saying, if, if you even think these things, you have a problem. If you hate your brother, you've committed murder. So the Spirit of God comes to illuminate the law, not to abolish the law. It, it, it comes to say that, that the obligation under the law is actually higher than you think it is. The, the primary words themselves need to be understood at a deeper level. That's exactly what the Holy Spirit does. It, it, he allows us to understand the law as it was intended from the mind of the one who created it and the heart of the one who created the law. He said, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. I'm going to show you what it truly means to fulfill the law. And when he says that, what he's saying is, just keep an eye on me. Keep watch. I, I, I implore you to watch me and to judge me, essentially, as whether or not I'm fulfilling the law. But you can't do that with an unregenerate heart. You've got to understand the spirit of the one who is the author of the law. And so he says, watch me, and I'll show you what it means to fulfill the law. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So it's our job to uphold the law. And it's, it's not necessarily putting a fence around the law. And the fence around the law concept would be what Eve says when she says that— um, she that we're not only supposed to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we're not even supposed to touch it. That's a fence around the law, which is an addition by man to the law. And Jesus has a lot to say about how we fence the law and which way our thinking begins. Does it begin on the fence side or does it begin on the law side? And that's the reason he's, he talks about anything that somebody would give to his mother and father, which is honoring your mother and father, keeping one of the Ten Commandments. You now say as Corbin, if he's made any sort of a vow to the Lord, that he can no longer help his, his uh, mother and father. And what he's saying is, is you got that wrong, that you're putting a fence on the wrong side of the law. The primary thing you need to worry about is honoring your father and mother. You shouldn't have made the vow to start with, but, but it's more important, he says, for you to help your father and mother whenever they're in need than it is to give that same thing as an offering 
because it's it's something you have to offer, and by offering it to your parents, then you have fulfilled the law, and you've fulfilled your vow. So Jesus is very clear that we're not to relax the commandments. We've got to see from which side of this thing we're, we're uh, observing the law. He says, whoever does them, though, and teaches them, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So again, I've said this a million times, James is not at odds with Jesus at all. Jesus here begins with does them and teaches them. You're going to be called great. It's not good enough just to teach. You've got to do them. And, and the reality is, is that in the doing, you begin to learn something more yourself about those commandments, and then you're more and better able to teach them than you were when they were just principles. He said, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven, which means that that he says your righteousness has to be higher. Now, I know as a Christian and as a pastor, certainly, that Jesus's righteousness is the righteousness that I have. I'm always standing positionally in the righteousness of Jesus. I can't get into heaven without his righteousness. But it doesn't mean, he's not speaking completely metaphorically here about his righteousness. He's speaking also to us who would pursue righteousness because he's already told us we have to do these things. And so that righteousness matters too. In in Paul, in the in the epistle here in 1 Corinthians, he's very clear about these things. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. So Paul says, I've been given something to teach, but I've also been given something to do. And I'm a steward of somebody else's treasure. And and, and that means he's a steward of the gospel. He, he's, he is held responsible for it. He's accepted the responsibility of stewarding that. But with me, he says, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. I'm not acquitted simply because I don't. nobody holds anything against me. He said, it's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And, and you know, recently we had a horrible experience of this after a man who was a great apologist for the church died word began to come out, those things that were hidden in darkness, that that he had some pretty significant sexual sin that needed to be dealt with, but we had all judged him as a faithful steward. And Paul says, don't do that before it's time. And it it breaks our hearts, and it can wreck our faith when we see another human being who we've greatly respected, who we've learned from, who perhaps, through whose work led us to Christ, that we now are disappointed that that man fell. And Jesus, or Paul here, says, don't make that mistake. Do not judge anything before it's time. And he says, then, once the the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purpose of his heart, then... Then and only then, he could say, each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. He said, I've applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you didn't receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, it's an alien righteousness. And what you have received from him is not something you should boast in. You should boast in the one who has given it. If we keep our eyes completely and constantly fixed on him rather than other men and women, 
We can be happy for other men and women. We can rejoice in their teaching so far as they remain true and faithful to the biblical witness. But at the same time, we're never to exalt those men and women because there may be things we do not know. So we should receive the message with gladness and not boast in in the messenger, but boast in the one whose stewardship was given to these. (laughs) 